1: Fear of failure, commitment, each other, and beyond. It's one of the few things that unites us all. Salem, Massachusetts knows this more than most, which is why Salem Horror Fest will return this October to explore societal themes of fear and anxiety in the Halloween capital of the world. Prepare yourself for two weeks of terror with screenings, panels, podcasts, special guests, parties, premieres, and more in the haunted and historic Witch City. Raise hell with Linnea Quigley and George C. Romero. Conjure demons with the faculty of horror. And repent before the latest film from Darren Lynn Bousman. Behold Wolfman's Nards with Monster Squad's Andre Gower. And relive your kinder trauma for the New England premiere of the Scary Stories documentary. Ryan Turek will present the opening night keynote speech on October 4th, followed by the 30th anniversary celebration of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Cassandra Peterson. Tickets and weekend passes are available now. To overcome fear, we must first understand it. SalemHorror.com And just a note. I first went to Salem when I was researching the script. I was writing for Hocus Pocus, and I was so blown away by it and the celebration that they give to Halloween and that season. I went back for another four or five years in a row. It's an amazing place, and this is an amazing place to have a festival like this. As horror fans, why are we drawn to the genre? What scares you? Is it maniac slashers, monsters from another world, creepy kids, spiders, or is it death? I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are so many theories about why horror movies appeal to people, but it only matters what scares you. Horror is personal, but it's also universal. For a lot of us, it's being able to face our fears and make ourselves stronger. For others, it's a test of our mettle to see how much we can really take and come through it alive and kicking. If you're young, it might be to embrace something your parents would never enjoy. And sometimes it's just the pure outrageousness of splattering the screen with blood and guts and everything nasty, a rebellious dose of rude, anti-establishment transgression for its own sake. A lot of people grow out of their love for the genre as they mature, and for them, well, so be it. Not everybody loves horror, especially as they reach adulthood. For others among us, like me, for example, it remains a passion, a way to tell stories more deeply, to delve more extensively into the most primal of our fears and emotions. We deal with death by sharing stories about it, and the more you confront it in real life, the more it deepens you. Writers and filmmakers in the genre who have been in it for a long time, like Stephen King, Clive Barker, David Cronenberg, Joe Dante, reach deeper into their hearts and guts than ever before, and the genre evolves with them. I don't ever want to stop evolving as a human being and as a filmmaker and storyteller. And I still love a cinematic bloodbath on its own terms just to provoke and transgress. But as my hair grays, I don't want my heart to follow. I don't ever want to forget what made me want to try to scare you with my stories in the first place. But maybe I can take you with me on a sanguinary expedition to the deeper realms of life and death and what scares us. Fred Decker's passion for the genre is obvious in everything he's written and directed. He's a guy who has written and directed Night of the Creeps and The Monster Squad and has a long list of credits every horror fan has embraced, including the screenplay for the new reboot of The Predator. We'll find out what makes Fred tick right after
2: this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally... (laughs) To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now here's your host, Mick Garris.
1: You started out loving comic books. Was that your kind of entry into the genre, or the fantastic, or did you, did movies come
2: first? I'd say movies came first. Uh, I, I wasn't a terribly athletic kid, and I spent a lot of uh, misbegotten time in front of the TV, but, but my dad was a film buff from youth. So he went to the movies in the, in the, you know, late thirties and forties. And, and, uh, so whenever there was a black and old black and white movie on TV, my dad would point out the character actors. He goes, look, that's uh, William Bendix. That's uh, you know, Frank Phelan. And, and so I never had a problem with watching old movies. And once I stumbled upon, uh, a monster movie, uh, I was insatiable, so those are really the, what was the first one? God. do you remember? Uh, you know what? I don't know, but I'm gonna say King Kong, mm. the original, only because it's probably, and I've seen a lot of movies. I would say probably that's the one I've seen most often. Yeah, I would. I would say good, 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 fifty times I've seen in my Son life. Son
1: of Kong was the first one for me. Oh wow, yeah. that's
2: interesting. Yeah, funny. Uh, it's funny you should say that. Mike Manola, who does, who created Hellboy. Never saw the first Planet of the Apes, but he, at a formative age, saw beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh, so that's the one that shaped him. Wow, strange. Huh? It's like
1: your first Mexican restaurant is the one you set the standard for all others <laughs> by. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, Kong was uh, remains one of my favorite movies of all time, and and I was just always drawn to the weird and the fantastic, and you know, it took me many years to to enjoy westerns and romance and all the other genres. Because uh, uh, because for some reason uh, I was a little bit of an outcast and and I was how drawn.
1: unusual in this genre yes <laughs> exactly <laughs> well we have dinners occasionally uh, we jokingly call ourselves the masters of horror dinners um, that you've come to uh, and, uh, and a, a bigger group of outcasts I've never seen <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's what bonds us I, I really want to thank you just on a personal note for inviting me into that cabal because it really it it, it there's a value there that 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 I really feel strongly about that you know we all share this and it meant a lot to me.
1: Well, there's a brotherhood and sisterhood that binds us that other genres don't seem to perpetuate, mm. you know. Uh, and your movies, the ones you've written and directed, particularly um, Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps, both have a sense of nostalgia about them. What is your connection to? The, the sense of history and this kind of affection for the, the genre movies of the past. Night of the Creeps has very much roots in The Blob, in a way. A lot of the sure. shots are even similar in the opening. Sure. So tell me what bonds you to that. Is it because of childhood connection?
2: Yeah, very much. I mean, I was a fan uh, from a very early age and, you know, paid attention to the credits and, and started to pay attention to the the, the special effects uh, designers, the Ray Harryhausens of the world and the and the directors and the writers. And so when I got my shot to make my first feature, I felt like, uh, in a way, uh, Night of the Creeps is kind of a, 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 a mishmash. It's, it's a hell's of poppin' of, of <laughs> all those movies that I saw when I was young. I just took all of these cliches. Let's get... You know, let's get some aliens from space and some zombies and a two-fisted gumshoe and some (laughs) cute sorority girls and drop them in the blender and hit the puree button and see what comes out. So uh, it was a very conscious pastiche, I think, that movie. Um, But in retrospect... Um I, I'm 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 s i i am i am hated that movie for years. After, really? Yeah. Why would that be? I just all I saw was my mistakes. You've had mm. this experience. Right? Of course. You, you just watch something and you go, oh God, what a horrible day. And, if
1: you don't, you're a hack.
2: Yeah. Um but I'm beginning to appreciate the things that um I did purely subconsciously. I've begin I've begun to realize that our, our job as filmmakers is is partially conscious, but a lot of it is just following our, our gut. And I feel like whatever I was, whatever I was going through, whoever I was when I made that movie, that, that there was something very pure about it apart from the pastiche. But yeah, there's lots of tributes to every kind of, uh, of genre movie. Uh, well, the
1: characters are named... Cronenberg and Carpenter and Hooper That's and, right. and it's Corman University That's and right. all of that. And that
2: was very conscious and then you okay. can see me stealing from John Landis and John Hughes and Ridley Scott and all those guys, not just the horror films but the, 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 the youth comedies of the time were very influential to me too Yeah,
1: but if you like it, it's, it's a tribute. If you don't like it then it's stealing so right. I like it. I, mean, I see it as a tribute. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. But there's also a sweetness and an, an affection about it. These me- movies are horror films, but they're not mean-spirited horror films.
2: I really appreciate you saying that. I don't know that that's something that people say a lot about my work, but um, I think that's just, again, my gut. It's not, I was never interested in how bloody or how violent or how, uh, nauseating, we can make this. It was always about who are the characters? Do we care about them, and uh, are are we in a strange way going to be moved by this little journey they go on, even though it involves zombies and s- right. space aliens
1: yeah, but they 're not mean spirited movies there 's grotesquery among them, right. but these two films, in particular, well, even more so with monster squad mm-hmm. there 's an embracement of of youth that you know. Monster yeah. Squad, if you're 12 years old, it's got to be your favorite movie.
2: Well, and I've heard that from many uh, people who saw it when they were 12. And, and it's true. It's it, it was intended kind of, and again, I think maybe subconsciously when Shane Black and I wrote it, to be a sort of youth empowerment movie. That the adults don't get it. The adults are, are, are uh, embittered and... and and realistic, and they don't believe in monsters, and the kids are completely open to it. So they're the only ones that can solve the problem. Right. I think that's. I think you know that was what we were going for.
1: Well, embracing these monsters. This was a TriStar movie, not a Universal movie. I imagine you had trademark issues to deal with in the designs of the creatures, particularly Frankenstein's monster mm-hmm. and things
2: Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we actually submitted it to Universal uh, when we finished the screenplay. Which would seem to be the obvious home for right, that movie. and because I'm a, 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 a monster kid, I wanted to use the Jack Pierce makeup designs to the to the sure. to the degree that we could, and it was really interesting because that was a whole different time than now, when everything is about building franchises and creating uh, um, universes that are connected. Yeah. And and they had they just said we're these this intellectual property means nothing to us. <sighs> we're happy to put frankenstein on a coffee cup at the at the universal you know studios tour but you know making movies about the these these characters is is not interesting to us it at all it
1: made the studio those <laughs> monsters
2: made the studio it's ironic it, that then you know now 30 years later they try to to do it all over again
1: as a marvel universe and not as a set of horror movies right. which is right. is unfortunate right. to, especially at a time when horror seems to be bigger than ever it's but, very interesting. But they want to turn them into Marvel, you
2: <laughs> right. know. They want to, yeah, action movies. They want to follow in the in the footsteps of, of Kevin Feige and those guys who are doing a wonderful job. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Universal passed on it, and I was very lucky. Uh, I think that Stan Winston and I were kind of fated to to work together because I had worked with Steve Miner, who I, I'm sure you know. Oh well, yeah. Um, on, on my first screenplay, and he was friends with Stan, and. And I just—we were sort of just these two ships that kept passing in the night. And, and Peter Hyams, I think, suggested we bring Stan in to do the the, uh, the monsters in Monster Squad. And he was a monster kid too. I mean, for for all of his genius and and his accomplishment, he he started out just like us as just a kid in front of the the, the movie screen or the TV.
1: Well, it's it's interesting. All of these names you just mentioned are people like. On Amazing Stories, uh, Stan Winston did go to the head of the class, which I had written, which Robert right, Zemeckis with directed. with Christopher Lloyd, yeah. With Christopher Lloyd. Um, Peter Hyams directed an episode that I wrote called The Amazing Falls Worth. One of my favorites, uh, with Gregory uh, Hines. Gregory Hines, uh-huh. yes. Um, and y- you had Bruce Broughton do music. That's right. For Monster Squad, That's who right. had done um, uh, Amazing Stories episodes as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... The 80s was an amazing time of an explosion in the world of fantastic film, in yeah. television and in film. Yep. And you were making movies which would now be independent films, but these were by a studio. They were for TriStar.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they were studio movies. I mean, they weren't, weren't as expensive as, uh, as movies that are made today by any stretch, but, uh, but yeah, they were studio movies. And were they both made in Los Angeles? Uh, they were, Night of the Creeps was um, uh, shot predominantly um, in North Hollywood. We found an old Sears that had been oh, abandoned.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, I know uh, exactly where, where that is. Where the TV
2: Academy is now. Yeah. Um, at Lancashire and uh, uh, near, near near Magnolia, uh, Chandler. Yeah. yeah. And magnolia, right? And um, we just owned it for a couple of months, and and so the, the the interior of the alien spaceship is was in there. Tom Atkin's apartment was in there. Uh, the, the the cryogenic lab we built all that stuff in in Sears, and then we went over to USC and UCLA and did some of the uh, the college stuff. Yeah, I
1: certainly recognize UCLA and the multicolored brick uh, right. in Night of the Creeps,
2: <laughs> which there. is fun because yeah. I had only graduated three years earlier. From UCLA. Yes. And our oh. first day, day one of my first feature was in Royce Quad at UCLA. So I got to sort of, you know, like I was like a peacock with my feathers up. Like, <laughs> Revisiting. Yeah, it was very exciting. And um, did you study film at UCLA? No, the film school wouldn't have me. <laughs> I, 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 um, I uh, tried to get in, but they, they weren't interested in me. So I was an English major. Uh, Ah, that's always useful for our career. Well, and for storytelling, I think (laughs) uh, it was, it it was definitely a fallback. But what I found was that I made this incredible group of friends. Um, Some were in the film school, some Mm -hmm. were in other, I mean, Ed Solomon, who, you know, wrote Men in Black and the Now You See Me movies. He was an econ major. And okay. his buddy Chris Matheson, right, the son of Richard, son Matheson. of Richard Matheson, yeah, yeah. And, and they worked as a writing team for years. Yeah, and yeah. and Tim Robbins was there, starting the actors' gang after having come from New York, and wow, and I met Shane Black and Shane Black but, and Ethan Wiley and Ethan and, Wiley yeah. and Ryan Rowe and and, and, and Jim Hurstfeld and David Silverman, who's the director on The Simpsons. I mean, and we were all just a bunch of um, you know beer drinking, you know, girl chasing college guys, right? And but we had this love of movies. Yeah. And some of us wanted to be actors, and some of us wanted to be directors, and some wanted to be writers. And uh, and I'm friends with these guys to this day. And so that was really really wasn't about the curriculum at UCLA. It was about cr- creating that group and being a part of that.
1: Well, as a storyteller, uh, there are so many different media to pursue, whether it's fiction or what was was writing first for you, or did you always have designs on being a director? Uh, I'll
2: be honest. I never had any interest in writing at all.
1: Really? No. But a filmmaker. Is it was what a you means
2: to, to an end because at that time, my heroes were guys like Francis Ford Coppola and Lawrence Kasdan, and and going back to Preston Sturges, uh, John Huston, yeah. who were guys that you know started as writers in order to be directors. So right. I, I've always thought of myself as 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 a director in a writer's body.
1: Ah, uh, and yet you've been writing for all of these years since mm. the eighties. Um, what about directing? Uh, is
2: it still your passion? Absolutely. Yeah. Because to me, to me, it's, it's fun to render a scene and be happy with it. And and there's no few greater joys than, you know, typing the last page of a screenplay. Mm -hmm. It's like running a marathon. You're a runner, you know, imagine like it's just just this long, long haul and then you're done and you can breathe finally. But directing is where you put it on its feet and, and you make it real. And if... You know, we talk about imagination and, you know, you're, you're beautifully written forward. I mean, we're talking about those chambers in the mind where you create these things like a mad scientist, but to not have them be – to not see them in the flesh is, is, can be very frustrating. I mean, you know, staying in your head or staying on the page is, is fine, but to be on a set and see something you've created, you know, become real with actors and makeup and costumes and sets, it's, um, it's the best.
1: And yet they are such completely different disciplines. They couldn't be more different. You write by yourself in a tunnel, (laughs) in a cave, and no one is around you. And when you're on a set, there's 100 people bustling around you at all times and pushing you up the hill. Exactly. You're You're hurrying.
2: Exactly. Writing is lonely and you wish somebody would talk to you and (laughs) directing is, okay, and I I answered that question 15 times yesterday. And now (laughs) here comes 50 more questions. It's exactly right. You're right. It's the opposite.
1: So were you always interested in various genre of films, or was it mostly in the horror and fantasy world?
2: It was mostly horror, fantasy, science fiction. Um, but I, I honestly feel that if I had it to, to do over again, I might not have gone that route. But remember, the early 80s, this is, we, we started roughly the same time. You you, you yeah. preceded me uh, by a couple of years. But, but that was a time, like now, when those genres were very commercial and relatively easy to set up mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to do a straightforward thriller or... A, or a movie star yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think I... I, I it was in my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. so I sort of took the uh, the path of least resistance. But um, if I had to, to do over again, I don't know that my career wouldn't have been very different if I'd sort of said, what do I really want to do? Um, and uh, I don't know what that would have been, but... But I'm happy with the the path I took.
1: Well, to be able to make your living doing what you love. Now, tell me about the first... Was House the first movie that you worked on that got made? Yes. So tell me about how that came about.
2: Well, uh, I I desperately wanted to to be a director and make a a movie. And I did a little bit of homework in the sense that I knew that... uh, If you have one location, that's going to be cheaper than a lot of locations. Mm -hmm. If you have one actor, that's going to be cheaper than a lot of actors. Mm -hmm. So, and I wanted to do a genre film because I wanted to make a scary movie. So I said, okay, I got my idea. It's a guy goes into a house at the beginning of the movie. And at the end of the movie, he comes out of the house. And in between is just the scariest shit I can come up with for 90 (laughs) minutes. And I called it House. Very simple, very straightforward. And uh, at that time, my my pals in college that I told you about in post-college, we were all extremely enamored of The Twilight Zone. Uh, And that was around the time that the movie uh, was coming out. And I'm a a huge, huge fan of that movie. I Mm. really do love it. And we all said, let's all make our own Twilight Zone segments. And I came up with one about a Vietnam veteran who was haunted by an incident that occurred. And he's haunted by his his uh, sol- his buddy, a soldier who died uh, in, in uh, Vietnam, and that sort of morphed into the premise for House, mm-hmm. which became the William Catt character who's holing up in the house so that he can write this memoir of his experience. But the funny part was, and I had this great idea for this movie, I thought this is going to be great and it's going to be cheap and I, I wanted to do it in black and white and yeah. have, it, have it be very sort of Billy friedkin Roman Polanski, just mm. really dark and edgy and weird and f- kind of like a European film. Right. and it Certainly didn't end up that way. Well, well <laughs> what happened was I never got around to writing it. Ah. I was busy doing this uh, film, uh, this script for Steve Miner, which was my first job in Hollywood. I was writing Night of the Creeps, and, and my college roommate, Ethan Wiley, said, are you ever going to write the house movie? And I said, yeah, one of these days. He goes, well, look, let me take a shot at it. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So he had all of the puzzle pieces. He knew kind of what it was. And I think he he consulted me a bit. Right. But by and large, he just went off and wrote the movie. And uh, he brought the script to me and said, here it is. What do you think? Right. Right. And I read it and, I, and I, I thought, this is wonderful. It's just not at all the movie I was – <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, I was thinking Dostoevsky and he handed me Mad Magazine. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I showed it to – and I was really busy and, and I, I didn't have – my career was sort of taking – we all have those 15 minutes. Yes. Of yep. your career, where yep. it's like the phone doesn't stop ringing. Yeah, and, you're the hot guy for a week. Yeah, yeah. and man. so it was that week, and I was like, you know, the house movie, I don't need it anymore because I might be able to get something else that I do. Right. So I showed it to Steve Miner, who, I, as I say, I was writing something for at that time, my first job in Hollywood, writing a script for Steve Miner, who had done Friday the 13th 2 and 3, and had worked right. with Sean on the first one. And right. Well, he produced the first one. He produced 13th, one, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the first one. And so anyway, so he was sort of my mentor for a couple of years and I Mm -hmm. gave him the house script and he said, I love this. I want to do it. I said, okay. He goes, I'm going to call, I'm going to call Sean. He called Sean. Sean said, I'll get you the money. And we were shooting within six months. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And that was my first. So did you go to the set? I did. And how did you feel
1: seeing something that had changed so radically from what you had originally envisioned into somebody else's vision?
2: Well, I'm, I'm kind of philosophical about it. I have a couple of, and, and I'm sure you've had this experience too. You have scripts you write that you're invested in hundred percent and then they're sort of taken over by, by step parents. Yes. Um, and I've done that a couple of times and there comes a point where I sort of relinquish the, the, the child to the step parent because right. I feel like it's not mine anymore they have more investment in it and it's n- i don't recognize really what it is anymore and that kind of happened with this i was i was prepping night of the creeps mm-hmm. in fact i i hired the editor on house michael canoe on right. night of the creeps because i we got along and i sat in the cutting room with him on house so i was already moving off in this other tangent and so i was thrilled to have a movie with my name on it right two things going at the right. same time that, how that, exciting is that and steve yeah. and ethan and and you know Bill Cat and, and George went, and it's and it's a tremendous tremendous fun, and people like it. And they, they made like five of them. And yeah, I was like, no, there's it's, nothing wrong with that.
1: And you get a paycheck for each one, a little one. <laughs> oh, oh, I must say though, because I saw <laughs> oh you weren't writers. Well, I yet. saw
2: you had Sean. I saw you had Sean here on the on the podcast. Yes. Um, I was Writers Guild because Steve um, uh, ushered me in. Uh-huh. But for okay. years, I was convinced that Sean didn't pay me, uh-huh. um, but I do get residuals now, so he did.
1: Oh, good. That's a good. thing. <laughs> Well, tell me about that transition of being the writer guy who gets an opportunity to direct his first feature film. How did that come about? Was it through management or agents or, or other relationships that you 'd had?:
2: It was those things it was also a degree of chutzpah. Um, this whole group I talk about, the uh, the UCLA mafia, we called ourselves the Pada guys, <laughs> and we were nothing if not full of ourselves. And so I wrote this script. I wrote it fairly quickly, uh, what became Night of the Creeps, and I gave it to my agent, David Greenblatt, who's one of the great, um, f- you know, famous agents. He, he co-created the Endeavor agency, and now he's a manager, and he's he's been sort of my, my uh, touchdown for my entire career.
1: Really? So you're still connected? Yeah. That's amazing.
2: So I said to him, you know, I really want to be a director. Here's this dumb little comic horror film. I don't know how much it'll cost. It's kind of wacky. But um, I wrote it very much to sort of jump off the page. If you ever look at the script, it's, it's a little hyperbolic. Uh-huh. I, t- I took a page from William Goldman, you know, where, you know, cut to the most beautiful girl you ever saw in your life, that sort, right. of, that sort of thing, where you read it and you go, this kid's got balls. You got to keep turning the pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I said, and I want to direct it. And um, he um, showed it to a wonderful producer uh, and a dear friend, uh, Chuck Gordon, who's Larry Gordon's brother. Right. And they made many movies together, The Hards and Feel the mm-hmm. Dreams and... Big stuff. Waterworld. You can't get much bigger than that. <laughs> yes. And Chuck loved the script and he said... And he called uh, Jeff Sgansky, who was head of TriStar at that time. Right. And he said, Jeff... Who had come
1: out of CBS. Had,
2: yeah. Who had come out of television, yeah. yeah. Lovely guy. And Casey Silver, who was his VP at that time, yeah. he was also a wonderful guy. Who I'm I wrote sure, The know.
1: Mummy for. There yeah, you go. Yeah.
2: There you go. Um, good people. But <laughs> Chuck's story is that he, he called Jeff and he goes goes, Jeff, listen, I'm, I, this is going to the, all the studios this weekend, but I'm going to give you, you know, a 12-hour head start. So I'm sending, I'm sending it over. I'm messengering it to you right now, but you've got to read it right away because everybody else is going to see it. And of course, he was completely lying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the bullshit worked. It, totally. <laughs> Jeff said, I love it. Let's make it. So I was terrified. Really? I mean, I'd made my little movies, but I didn't have, I didn't know what screen direction is. So I didn't this know moved what a, so fast that yeah.
1: suddenly you were thrust into being a professional director's guild director.
2: And I hadn't been in, in film school. Right. So, you know, master shot, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, and all What's of, a 35 millimeter lens? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, I started to, but I learned quickly in yeah. terms of lenses, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie has some real pace problems.
1: Bob New shot Riding the Bullet for me. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah, the same DP as you had. That was a year or two later? Or? No, it was 2004. Oh, my gosh. In, up in Vancouver, where he's from. Yeah. Well,
2: I loved his reel, and he, he I loved his sense of color and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm sure he found me... Uh, my analogy is, is Rip Torn. I worked with Rip Torn once, and Rip Torn, said, <laughs> Rip Torn said to me, I feel like I'm a trained dog working for you. Ooh. And I, and I actually... <laughs> Took that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I would think he wouldn't take it. Yes. Well, with it his reputation. reputation. That's right. No, no, we, we got along fine. But I think he was, I think, I think Bob New probably felt the same way. Kind of like the camera goes here. I mean, having worked, you know, recently with um, with Larry Fong on, on Shane Black's movie. And, and Shane sort of, maybe we're over here somewhere. He's not a real, he's not Kubrick. He's not, he doesn't line up the shot and say, here's what it should be. He lets the DP shoot the movie. Right. It's like, here's, here's yeah. the flavor of it. And I want to get enough coverage that we can cut this any way we want. Mm-hmm. But I was very Kubrickian. So very
1: specific. Where you th- knew what every shot was.
2: Yeah. I storyboarded most of it. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, by the time I got a sense of what the lenses were, it was like, I want the 24 on sticks here mm-hmm. and B camera here on a 50. And I'm sure that The union crew was, like, (laughs) rolling their eyes. Who is this kid? Well, the visionaries uh, make films that way. Well, the the movie suffers from it a little bit Mm -hmm. because I didn't hedge my bets. Right. Um, But there's also stuff in the movie that I'm very proud of because it's a little bit ballsy. It's a little bit, you can't. Do that, yeah. You know, yeah. I put Tom Atkins on a dolly and I spun the dolly around, and, I, <laughs> and then I did it again on a different lens and a different lens. And it's just—it's just him spinning around, shooting a gun, right? But I literally put him on the dolly so I could spin him 360 degrees to the camera. Fantastic! And people love it. I mean, you know, I showed that at retro houses, and people go, Yay! Just "Yeah," just because it's—it's it's stylish. Well, as your first time out as a director, where did it open? What theater did you go to opening night? Alright, now here's where the story gets do we have a violin can we play some little violins? <laughs> <story, I think? laughs> Hit it. The okay. uh the, the, the movie did not do well. And uh I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Um and it was released regionally, so it actually didn't open in LA. Hmm. I did get to go to Times Square. Chuck Gordon and I and and some of the actors went to uh a, a Times Square grindhouse and watched it. Really? It so it opened in the grindhouses. It played like gangbusters there. Yeah. And it and it did very well in Germany, and it did wow. very well in... I saw it in a theater Germany. here opening week. Yeah, well, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it opened in theaters. Yes. Technically. <laughs> <laughs> but it did not do well, and it was... Yeah it was It would have been really heartbreaking for me, except I was already working on
1: the monster squad ah yeah. okay, so you 'd set up the next
2: one. we we 'd set it up in, in, yeah. I was in post on creeps and and uh, Rob Cohen god bless him and 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 Keith barish and Peter Hyams, who was a hero of mine. This is a kind of a cool story i just I loved peter 's films I love right.
1: capricorn One capricorn
2: One incredible movie, and yeah. I love Hanover Street, I love busting I mean all of his early films I just thought were I was mm-hmm. crazy about. So I said to David Greenblatt, my agent, I'd love to meet Peter Hyams. And he sort of took me under his wing, which was really very nice of him. That's
1: amazing. Um, He's a tough guy. When we were working together on Amazing Stories, I saw him push the DP aside and say, no, yeah. uh, I'm going to put this light here. It's our only source. Yeah. And we're going to shoot it this way. Mm-hmm. And it's like the is going, OK. Yep.
2: And, yeah. and shortly thereafter, started shooting his own movies. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. He shot all of his movies from that point on. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, he was he was tough. It was a he was a father figure, but a stern one and uh, tough love. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think ultimately that movie works um, in large part due to um, Shane's first draft script, which mm-hmm. uh, is uh, probably the best script that I've had to, to do. So it. Shane wrote
1: the script by himself, and then you
2: rewrote it. We yeah, we broke the story together. But uh-huh. because I was working on Creeps, uh, I let him sort of go. And it was the second, I think it was the second or third script he'd ever written. And the first job, I mean, I gave him his first job as a screenwriter um, as far as being a paid screenwriter. Wow. And uh, I, think the, I think the script's wonderful. It's it just, I, I I didn't do a lot to it, but we had been in the trenches breaking the story and creating the characters and deciding what it was going to be. And, and you were both monster kids. Yeah. Yeah. M- me more than him a little bit. Mm-hmm. He he loved this old uh, series of books, The Three Investigators. He loves... He loves detective fiction, uh-huh. know, the Hardy Boys and Nancy really? Drew. He knew all that stuff, so wow. he so he brought a little bit of the kid gang detective element to oh, it. Oh, that's cool. Um, but uh, I think I think it's it's Shane's script and and Peter's um, oversight. Really? So Peter was involved creatively? He was, and we sort of butted heads early on, and Mm -hmm. there came a point where he sort of, I guess, decided that maybe I knew what I was doing. Uh So the end of the movie... If you know the movie, the last two reels, which I think is the best part of the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, I was completely on my own. It was me and Bradford May, the DP, and
1: right. And and Bradford May had done the Twilight Zone (laughs) TV series around the same time. He had (laughs) with Andre
2: with an episode of with Andre Gower, who's the star of the Monster Squad as well.
1: Right, right. So the Monster Squad really kind of pulls together everything cool about childhood, and and I we go back again to this nostalgic element of it that you know it's it's stuff that you miss there weren't many movies like that made in the 80s Mm-mm. and so tell me how that pitch went and how that went from pitch to movie
2: well i think uh, the one of the things and i don't know if this was your experience one of the things about the 80s was that it was ex, it, it was very open it was it was a, it was a wide field you didn't have what you have now which is this kind of compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's always been genres. There's always been, what is it? Is it a Western? Right. Is it a romance? What's a Western with some romance? Okay, but be careful. (laughs) Yes. Don't exceed your boundaries. Right, exactly. But in those days, there were, you know, tremendously odd. I mean, Terry Gilliam was making these very strange movies and, and, you know, I, I mean, if I had a list in front of me and I read some of these titles, you'd know them all and you've seen them. They're-
1: well, the 70s and the 80s both were kind of uncontrolled, in,
2: yeah. in, creatively uncontrolled. Yeah. There, there were opportunities to, to break the rules. Right. And you also had these gunslinger executives like Casey and Jeff Zagansky mm-hmm. who just said, we're betting on the kid. <laughs> yeah, you know let's bet on the kid yeah so we got keith Barrish and rob cohen to produce this movie and peter was uh, the, the kind of active producer and we just wanted to make a fun kind of raucous scary adventure movie right um you know the goonies had been two three years earlier mm-hmm. so there was a template another for one it. i did
1: the making of the goonies <laughs>
2: documentary yeah <laughs> yeah so 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 there's a template for it Yep. But it's and, – and the Goonies did very well, obviously much better than The Monster Squad. But it's not like that's uh, a gen- uh, the kid adventure genre. I mean it's a very snitchy, niche genre. And what was interesting is that we finished the movie and it was I think maybe better than I thought it was going to be uh-huh. in some ways. Yeah. Um, but they had no idea how to market it. They suddenly had to go, okay, now we have to sell this movie. Right. What is it? Well, it's it's kids fighting monsters. Well, is it – Violent and scary, a little bit. Yeah. Well, then the kids can't see it. Well, then teenagers, well, teenagers think it's a kid's movie.
1: Right. And they'll stay away.
2: <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, parents wouldn't bring their kids because they were afraid their kids would be scared. Even and though these were the monsters that the parents grew up with. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know uh, if, if they had marketed it differently, if they would have found the sweet spot. Uh, Mm -hmm. I really don't. I think it was just, it was a feathered fish. It was the wrong movie at the wrong time. But what happened was all those kids whose parents wouldn't let them see it, Mm -hmm. two years later, stay up on Saturday night on HBO. Right. And there it is.
1: Home video and HBO made a lot of movies successful. Yep. I mean, Critters 2 was a disaster. Was it? And then when video happened, they made two more sequels and all of this. And it's like, it (laughs) plays more now than it did then. Um, and, and so when did you first get that feedback of there is an audience out there who
2: has embraced this movie? Are you ready for this? Movie came out in 1987. Right. I got a call in 2007, Mm -hmm. 2007 from, um, a guy who I'd made friends with, uh, who wrote for a, um, um, a genre. Actually, know a movie uh, a website called Eighty Cool News. Oh Lo- yeah, lovely guy named Eric Vespi, and he said, mm-hmm. "He said, listen, I've been trying to talk them into. I've been trying to talk the Alamo Draft House into doing a screening of the Monster Squad." And I said, "Well, I hope more people come than they did opening <laughs> night." <laughs> and they set it up, and they flew me and and a bunch of the cast out, and uh, it was Easter Sunday, two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. And they had booked the theater and it was sold out. Yep. It was so sold out that they had to do a second screening that, that, that was also sold out. That doesn't surprise me at all. And we showed this movie and these people came in their Stephen King rules T-shirts and their <laughs> Wolfman's Got Nards hats. Yeah. And it was clear that something had radically changed. And the first thing I always do when I get up at one of these screenings is I say, where were you guys 20 years ago?
1: <laughs> they were eight years old. They were eight, That's eight years old. what it was. Yeah. Amazing. Well, as the writing continues, well, first of all, we should mention that Shane Black, I think, may have been the first guy to ever sell a spec script for a million bucks, something like that. That sounds right. Yeah, and, uh, and has gone on to become a very successful writer and director mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. And you are still working with him, and we'll get to that. But mm-hmm. I'd like to make a pit stop at Star Trek. Oh, okay. So Star Trek Enterprise, mm-hmm. um, it seems kind of far afield, even though it's science fiction fantasy. Was it? Were you a big Star Trek fan from the beginning?
2: I was kind of in high school. Um, original series was in uh, reruns at that time, and uh, uh, I, I did have a, f- a fondness for it. Um, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, a slavish, devoted... I wasn't a devotee, but... Um, Not a Trekkie. I, I, I was sort of h- half. Mm-hmm. I was a half. Can you do that? Can you go to church sometimes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, just on Easter. But, but, but I, uh, I loved um, The Wrath of Khan. I think ah, there, I think okay. there, I think Star Trek Two is one of the great space operas of all time, mm-hmm. and uh, and I am very fond of the follow-up uh, Star Trek Three. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I had a lot of affection for. For Star Trek, Nicholas
1: but, Meyer did the second one, right? He did. yes. Yeah, who, who did the Amazing
2: Time After Time? Yeah, a wonderful, yeah. wonderful writer. Thirty percent, yeah, really literary, and it has mm-hmm. the, the movie has that element to it. it has the, letter, the literaryness of it, and, and so that's what caught you up in the ethos of, of Star Trek, in a way, yeah, in a way, and but I didn't really follow. I have to confess, the Next Generation, or Deep Space Nine or Voyager, but um, it was just it was it was my TV agent making a call at the right time to Brandon Braga, who I guess knew who I was, and um, he loved Monster Squad as a kid. Probably, (laughs) probably not enough blood for Brandon, but um, there you go. But you know, and I went in and I was excited about. Depicting the pre-Kirk years, there was something very exciting about kind of this prequel idea. This is the first warp ship, and this is the first warp crew, and what right. are they going to see? Um, so I was very jazzed about that, and I also, you know, my career was not exactly, uh, you know, peaking at that point. So mm-hmm. to have a staff peaks, job, peaks and valleys are uh, yeah. very common in the creative life. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So that was a that was a that was a valley. And, uh, to have a staff job on a, on a big show like that.
1: So you were in the writer's room. You were, yep. it was a staff job. Tell me what that experience was like, because the writer's rooms I've been have all been anthologies. Mm. So there's not a writer's
2: room other than like right. amazing stories. Well, that was, we did. that was my experience on Tales, Tales from the Crypt. Right. We'll right. get to that one too. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, I made some really good friends there. There were some really wonderful writers there. Um, I just think the, I think the show was was not conceived perhaps as as uh, I wouldn't say as well as it could have been. It wasn't it wasn't conceived in a way that allowed us to really explore new life and new civilizations. Right. Right. We ended up um seeking out a lot of life and civilizations we'd seen in other Star Trek shows.
1: Ah, okay. Uh, a little bit of rehash. Yeah. So the experience as a writer in features and as a director in features you're pretty much on your own you're doing work unless you're co-writing something like that Mm -hmm. but in the writer's room what was that experience like i mean you're sharing you're beating stories out with each other Mm -hmm. and you're also contributing to each other's screenplays as well. Correct, right? yeah. Tell me about that process and how it differed from the process uh, of making a feature film.
2: Well, obviously, it's, it, it's very different in terms of the writing because rather than sort of contemplating your navel and looking out the window and going <laughs> to get coffee and, and being on your own time, you're with other people and everyone, you know, should, should be chiming in ideas. And it's really where the showrunner comes in. To me, the showrunner in television is the equivalent of the director in movies. It's the, it's the guy or gal who is going to focus all that energy in the direction that it needs to go. And um, our showrunner wasn't always with us. Sometimes we sort of mm-hmm. did it on our own, and mm-hmm. then he would look at it afterwards. Um, so there was a disparity, I think, in the process. Um, but so it was much more collaborative
1: process just in the writing stage that you would normally get as a director you collaborate with 100 people but here you're in a room with a dozen people
2: right and also as you know as a director ultimately the buck stops with you right whereas with the with the with the staff it it stops with the showrunner so it's um it it can be frustrating it can be wonderful Um, you know you you get you get credit for for anybody's good ideas if your name is on the script and (laughs) and anything that it sucks. You have to kind of take the hit for that too.
1: But if your name is on the script, chances are there are several scenes that were written by
2: others. In the case of Star Trek Enterprise, for me, if you look at the first one I did that I wrote uh, with uh, Jeffrey Combs as uh, the Andorian, right, the great Jeffrey yeah, Combs, wonderful, wonderful actor, a yeah. great guy. Um, that one was maybe eighty-five percent. That's pretty good betting draft. average. Yeah. The second one I wrote. Now we're down to. Probably 45. Mm. And the third one and the last one was sort of unrecognizable. Really? But your name was the one on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing about television, folks. Remember, if you see Written By on a TV show, you don't know who wrote it. Right. And did you feel...
1: Comfortable in that role as one of a group of writers, or it was just a different experience going from a different perspective, uh, or do you feel more comfortable or more cut out for the work as a feature film writer, or and or director?
2: Well, obviously, directing is where I'm happiest because, as I say, it's all really happening in front of you, and you know, you're on the, you're at the front of the field, you're near the goalpost. Um, writing, whether it's in a group or by yourself is a little bit more amorphous. And, uh, uh can we swear on this podcast? Yes,
1: we fucking can. I had, I had a <laughs>
2: wonderful editor that I worked with that, that cut RoboCop three for me and we were getting notes from the studio and he goes, I don't know. I feel like we're fucking a ghost. <laughs> and that's kind of what writing is both by yourself and with a group. Yeah. Um, but I've become a huge fan of, of television, uh, I think in the last, Ten years, it's become fantastic. Some of the best writing there is is in um, episodic television and specifically serialized, mm-hmm. you know, cable uh, um, series. So I'm a huge fan of. I mean, whatever Magic Tonic Vince Gilligan has. Oh man, uh, I can't. I mean, what I wouldn't give to just be in that room for a day. Yeah, and I didn't feel that way on Breaking Bad and yeah. Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. It, sure. it, there's, there's something just magic in the water there. And Mm -hmm. I would love to, it's like a movie you love. It's like, how did you you look at a Kubrick movie? Like, how did he do that? Yeah. Um, And as I say, I never wanted to be a writer, but um, I'm really appreciating good writing now more than I ever have.
1: Well, another thing you did was, um, Tales from the Crypt, you did a half a dozen or so of those That's as a writer, right. including one of the three pilot episodes. That's right. The Bob Zemeckis one, All Through the House, mm-hmm. is one of the great, it was great in the Amicus film, mm-hmm. the the Joan Collins version, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was great in the comic book. And this one, and once again, Mary Ellen Trainer, who was Bob's ex-wife, Bob yeah. Zemeckis' ex-wife, yes. was the lead in, In your version. Right. And And she had
2: been the mom in Monster Squad. Exactly. I miss miss her dearly. She was a lovely lady. Yeah,
1: (laughs) she was great. And uh, so tell me about that. I mean, you'd obviously seen the 1970s version
2: with John Collins yeah
1: and what was the experience I mean Zemeckis directed one of my amazing story mm-hmm. scripts so what was your experience with Bob in that because oh, he's we, a writer
2: as well sure yeah no it was a, it was absolutely a joy I mean you have to understand there's there's a handful of people who are you know who, who work in this business who I just you know idolize and he uh has been was one at that time and had been for a while so it was really Joel Silver I, I, and, and Dick Donner and, and Walter Hill, and, Walter yeah. Hill and, and David Geiler had formed this little cabal to do the Tales from the Crypt. And I, had sort, of, and I sort of knew all of them mm-hmm. because of that 15 minutes of, of heat. Right, yeah, <laughs> uh, I know that. And Gordon yeah. Carroll, who was, a, who was a mentor of mine too, who I, yeah. I miss dearly. Um, so I knew all those guys and Joel... Uh, who obviously had made A Lethal Weapon with Shane. And he was he was asking all of my buddies from college, the Patted guys group. Ah, hey, okay. What about that? What about your friend Bob? I, I'm doing this movie Action Jackson with with Carl Weathers. Maybe Bob will write it. Yeah. So Bob did write it. <laughs> <laughs> so great. all of those movies you have people that hung out at our house back in the 80s. Um, and Joel called me and it, we, we talked about the peaks and valleys. And this was a valley. Mm. And uh, I needed a job. And Joel said, hey, "I write the first Tales from the Crypt. It was actually the first one that was made. Yes, it was and all through the house. And I said, um, "Okay." He goes, "Bob Zemeckis is directing it." And I was like, "I, you know," took a took a deep breath and said, "Did you just say what I think you said?" And uh, he's a magician. He's the, not just a filmmaker. He's oh, a no, magician. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. And sometimes he'll make a whole movie just because he's got a trick he wants to do. <laughs> yeah, um, wonderful guy, great director, great um, just just salt of the earth. And but I did ask him, I said, "How are we going to top the amicus movie because that was really scary, yeah and he goes, it's a suspense piece we're going to make it a suspense we're going to just keep keep tightening the the, the corkscrews. So we broke it together. It was kind of what we talked about with staff writing and television, but it was just me and Bob in his bungalow at Universal, yeah and okay, now the phone rings, but the phone's in the other room, but she can't go there because maybe santa's and and we just kept trying to figure out how to throw obstacles in Mary Ellen's way. Nice. And it was so much fun. And and I wrote the script based on what we came up with, and he shot it exactly what I wrote. Wow. Yeah. Did not change a word. That's incredible. And uh, I was so overjoyed. And then we did uh, together a, a script that wasn't made, but... I don't know if you heard about the follow-up. We were going to do Two-Fisted Tales. Yes, yes. And so we wrote a Two-Fisted Tale that was a World War II, Alistair MacLean, you know, uh, uh, behind enemy lines adventure story. Right. Which I loved. And, um, but sadly, that one was never made. But working with Bob was a dream.
1: Well, that was great. Were you on staff on Tales from the Crypt or was there a staff? There was no staff. They
2: were all written independently. This was before, uh, was it, who was it? Gil Adler,
1: yeah, Gil Adler uh, came in, and he and his writing partner, right, and Cat uh, uh, Allen, Katz. yeah, yeah.
2: And, and but prior, I to, did
1: one of those. Did you? Yeah, I directed one. Second season, first uh, season. No,
2: it was like five, oh. season five or six. Because what they did was, and, and what I love about the first, the first two couple seasons, is it was really just like Joel just throwing roaming things at people like you know,
1: hey Tom Hanks, you want to do Tom a movie? Hanks?
2: You yeah. want to do one? You know, yeah. I, you know, hey, hey Arnold, why don't you direct one? Yeah, it's like well, you really want Arnold to direct one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll do great. But to me, Arnold Warren. Schwarzenegger did and, and, directed and, and, one. Yeah, but he did, and and it was like he gave writers a shot, he gave actors a shot. He you know, Tom Holland did a couple. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was just, it, and there was no kind of overriding. There was no showrunner, per se. Right.
1: Well, that's what it was on Masters of Horror. We didn't have a writing staff other than me. Right. It, uh, and all of them were just independently written. Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, they were uh, what's good whoever about, had a good idea. Right. And what's yeah. good about that is that you have – is that they're all different. If you yeah. look at the Tom Hanks episode and then the next one is, you know, Chris Whaless, you know, yeah. or, or mine, and you'll see – Sometimes they're really broad and the comedy is like really over the top. And then you'll have like this sort of dark, unsettling William Friedkin feel to it.
1: Oh, Friedkin. And
2: and that comes from nobody saying, that comes from no tone meetings. Right. Which all TV has tone meetings.
1: That you encourage the personality of the filmmaker. Right. And that's what Masters of Horror was about. There was never a tone meeting and none of them were alike except that, you know, we alternated directors of photography and the like. But, um, yeah, it became the Boobs and Blood show after a while, <laughs> uh, Tales from the Crypt. And, uh, but the pilot was really three 30-minute shows, That's and right. it was Walter Hill and Bob Zemeckis and Richard Donners. That's and right. And all of them were great, and they were completely different from each other. Yep. And that was, it was the perfect way to set up what this series was. Mm-hmm. So...
2: And all written by the Pat of Guys, by the way. Robert Renault wrote the second one with Bill Sadler, with Walter Hill. Right. And Terry Black wrote the Dick Donner episode, and Terry is Shane's brother. Wow. Yep. Well,
1: speaking of the Blacks and your relationship with Shane, Mm -hmm. you've got something that you've been working on with Shane Black now and will be out soon. And it's a completely new take on Predator.
2: It is. I mean... uh, it's a sequel to the first movie. Oh, it, really? So it ignores it, everything in between. No, it acknowledges the second, it acknowledges the first movie, it mentions the characters in the first movie, it, it acknowledges and mentions some characters or character in the second movie, um, and may or may not refer to the others. Mm-hmm. But it really is sort of a, a, a new movie that we hope if you Aren't invested in the predator, you can go and have a rollicking good time anyway.
1: Well, your personality as a writer and filmmaker, and Shane Black's personality as a writer and filmmaker, already make it something very different. Mm. And how would you, what would you say the attitude of the movie is? Uh,
2: it's it's. It's a throwback to the kinds of movies that Shane and I uh, bonded over when we first met at UCLA, mm-hmm. which is, you know, adventure, uh, science fiction, characters, humor, um, a little bit like that, like that World War II uh, uh, script that I, that I wrote with Bob Z. I mean, you know, we said, let's do the Dirty Dozen. Mm-hmm. What would that look like now? Right. But the other thing that we've done very consciously is to take the archetypes that people recognize from that first movie. And because the world's changed so much, that kind of 80s macho Carl Weathers and Arnold's arms slapping together in a big <laughs> McTurnan close-up. I mean yeah. there's a there's – a, I, 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 I think McTurnan's a great director. Don't get me wrong. But there's, yeah. a, there's a cheese factor in the 80s that uh, that you can see in in my movies and a lot of really good movies. And the, the, the political landscape is very different now. And Shane and I both felt like, you know, soldiers are not what's now what soldiers were there and in the Reagan era, it was very much, you know, very macho, very kind of, um, patriotism. And, and we're seeing veterans now who are being sort of tossed aside after doing their, their duties. And, uh, we thought, well, that's, that's Kelly's heroes. That's. The Dirty Dozen, that's what we want, is we don't want the guys you expect to be the heroes. You want the guys who've been tossed aside and and ignored and are considered screw-ups. You want them to save us from the Predator. So that's the tone of the movie. So it's also
1: a blockbuster. You haven't done a whole lot of blockbuster work, and and what was that experience like working on a movie? And and you were around during production all the way to the end, Mm -hmm. too. You weren't just, here's the script, go make it. Right.
2: Now, we were writing on the on the set. Uh, Shane's approach is really educational for me, because I'm, I've always been kind of get the script right, let actors um, contribute and and dovetail it to this, the locations that you find. And, and there's a certain amount of, of finessing that you do. But I've never experienced what Shane does, which is we rehearse with the actors, and one of them may say, "You know?" What if I have Tourette's? <laughs> and Shane goes, great. <laughs> and that means that every scene with that character now, we go through and have to redo. Right. Um, it was really interesting on a, on a movie of this. I won't tell you what the budget is, but it's a big movie. Yeah. And I'm there and, and I go, what if the kid says this? And Shane goes, that's great. And he does, and there it is. So and you just go ahead and do it <laughs> without worrying about the repercussions. It's very And
1: if you come up with an idea that takes a
2: while to do it, you've got the time and money to yep, do it. Yep, And if something doesn't work as well as you'd like, you rewrite it and you shoot it again. Right. And reshoots are always a part of the
1: blockbuster package. Yep, yep. And there's budget put aside for that. Yeah. So how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker or as a storyteller? Let's make it more broad than that.
2: I'd like to think that, I, that the only reason I can't answer that is that I'm a perpetual student. I'm constantly learning. And I don't mean this in a kind of self-aggrandizing way. I don't mean like, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not false humility. I genuinely, I mean, Shane and I are writing a pilot now for Warner Brothers. And I've been wrestling with the finale for a while. And I went and saw um, Solo, the new mm-hmm. Star Wars story. And I loved it. I thought it was great. And I came home and I went, I got to throw this out and I got to start all over again. This finale does not work because it has to be reversal after reversal after reversal. And I mm. forgot to put in the reversals. Mm. For those of you at home, if you don't know what a reversal is, it's in a scene, you think one thing's going to happen, but the thing you hoped wouldn't happen does happen. And then when you think that you can solve that problem, another thing that you don't want to happen happens. Um, and it, it, the scene's much better now. So I, I'll, I'll, I can't describe what I do except that I, I, I try to get better every time. Perpetual evolution, perhaps. Perpetual evolution, which happens to be the theme of the predator. There we go. <laughs>
1: and on that note, Fred Decker, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's great. This has been a, a, a joy. Thank you. All right. We'll do it again soon. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at MickGarrisInterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening.
2: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.